0: and Communications, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Pooley from Muhlenberg College, and I'm thrilled to have Melissa Ronchek, author of Branding the Nation, the Global Business of National Identity, on the podcast today. The book is newly published by Oxford University Press. Uh, welcome to New Books and Communications, Melissa, and uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Well, Melissa, who is an assistant professor at the School of Communication and Information at Rutgers, has written a truly superb book on uh, the phenomenon of nation branding. And she locates the rise of nation branding as a response to the perceived need to sculpt uh, national identity in order to stand out in a f- fiercely competitive global economy. And among the many outstanding traits of the book is uh, Aronchik's insistence on tracing the rise and spread of the very idea of national competitiveness, a discourse that, in effect, created a market that branding specialists then tapped. Throughout, the book engages with the impossibly large scholarly literature on nations and nationalism, arguing that nation branding should not be dismissed as merely the invasion of business practices into the national imaginary, though it has this character, she argues, but that we should also read nation branding as a discourse that maintains and extends the nation. In addition to uh, engaging with a vast range of secondary literature across multiple disciplines, it's one of those books whose care and scholarship shows up in the meticulous and thoughtful footnoted excursions uh, that most readers won't even see, regrettably. Uh, Aranchik interviewed dozens of nation-branding specialists over a five-year period and developed major case studies of Poland and Canada in particular, and also um, substantial treatments of a number of other cases that span the globe, including um, Botswana, Estonia, Libya, and many others. Um, And I have to say, "It's uh, Branding the Nation was one of the very best books I've read in recent years. Uh, and, and the book re- successfully tells the story of how national identity, improbably, came to be seen and sold as a form of added value uh, in a competitive global market. And then also how these campaigns fed back into the ongoing process of thinking and imagining the nation. But in a particular and and arguably narrow way. So anyway, I just thoroughly enjoyed the book. Thrilled to have you here. And thanks again for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to talking about the book.
0: So, you know, you truly did stumble upon this topic uh, accidentally okay. in, uh, from from reading your introduction. And I wondered if you could... Let readers know, haven't yet had the chance to read the book, how it was that you came across the nation branding phenomenon.
1: Yes. Yeah, so if I'm going to tell the story of the book, I do have to reveal my shady past working in an advertising agency from 1998 to about 2003 uh I worked in an ad agency in Montreal first as a production editor and proofreader and then eventually as a so-called creative uh on the, the doing the copywriting and while i was there one of my principal clients was uh the tourism quebec uh, agency. That's a government agency. And our mandate was to brand Quebec essentially for Americans, try to get Americans to uh, visit Quebec. And I was so surprised And shocked, really, by the experience that I had creating that campaign and the kinds of rules that we were subjected to by the Tourism Quebec agency. They had a very strong idea of how they wanted Quebec to be seen. uh, And... For those who know something about the politics in Canada, Quebec is um, very interested in conveying its distinction from the rest of Canada in a number of ways, politically and and culturally. And this campaign was no exception. And I was so surprised by this merger of politics and publicity that I felt I had to write about it and I had to write about it in a, a formal Setting and that was those that experience was really the nucleus of my entire interest in nation branding.
0: Great. Well, even the idea of nation branding probably deserves uh, some explanation. You know, if you could even speak to the rough timing of its emergence as a kind of self-understood industry, Mm -hmm. or uh, and and let readers know about that.
1: Yeah, when I mean, when branding gets imported from the commercial world into the political world, it takes on different meanings and gets used in different ways. When I talk about nation branding in this book, I'm really talking about how political and commercial interests have become intertwined in a strategic campaign to create and communicate national identity. Um, What seems to have happened is that business concerns have become so central to how nations see themselves, both at home, domestically, and internationally. Um, And to me, this has major implications for our sense of what it means to be a good citizen, what it means to feel connected to the place we come from. And what it means to define ourselves in terms of our country, you know, what, by that I mean when you say I'm American or I'm Canadian or I'm Jamaican or Italian, that has a really strong emotional resonance. And the way I understand nation branding is that that kind of emotional resonance has been picked up and translated into value for business. Um, nation branding is not the same thing as product branding. The best distinction that I heard was actually given to me by one of the nation branding consultants I interviewed who told me, you don't have to ask the beans in the can how they feel about the label. <laughs> so that's, you know, that's a pretty um, pithy summary of how people understand the difference between product branding and nation branding. There are people involved. Um, it's not the same as political branding. So I I make a distinction in the book between uh, what I define as nation branding and the political branding of uh, leaders, political leaders or political parties when people talk about the Republican brand or the Democratic brand. That's not really what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a much uh, broader and longer-term campaign that government actors and business concerns and these consultants Uh, work on together to shape the world's opinion about a country's culture, uh, its heritage, and its people.
0: Great. And the book goes on to develop this very, very um, insightful argument about uh, how globalization as a discourse and you know, neoliberalism as a set of beliefs played a big role in paving the way for the rise of nation branding, uh, as you describe it, as a kind of perceived solution mm-hmm. to problems um, mm-hmm. or felt problems uh, faced by the nation state. And I wondered if you could uh, talk about those. I know that's a big question. And, you know, maybe in the context of this um, uh, incredible spread of the branding phrase into everyday language over the last you know couple of decades.
1: I, maybe I need to go back uh, in time a little bit uh, and tell the story of how I understand the rise of nation branding um, and that will connect to the, the question you're asking me especially about globalization I the story of the rise of nation branding as I tell it starts in the late 1970s and the early 80s and at that time corporations Were mainly seen as national corporations, Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, in the U.S., for example, that idea is contained in the old dictum, "What's good for General Motors is good for America." It was a very famous saying, and the identity of companies was directly tied to the country where they were located, and people understood the values of the country in terms of the industries that were located there, but. Uh, As many of us know, starting in the late 1970s, things started to really change. I mean, we could locate the history further back, but if we we take it starting in the 70s, corporate CEOs realized there was more money to be made uh, by locating factories overseas. At the same time, foreign companies were buying formerly cherished American firms. Uh, Companies were outsourcing and producing goods abroad, becoming multinationals and they just weren't tied to one country anymore. And that's, that's a familiar story. But what happens next is a little less well-known and that's that as companies start to divest themselves of their physical bases, their, their bricks and mortar factories, the, the land the companies used to be located on, their manufacturing materials and so on, they begin to recognize that the real value of the firm lies in the concept of intangible assets. In other words, it's the country's reputation. It's its brand. And that's what consumers are really paying for. And the best thing that companies could do at this stage was to invest in their brand, not in their stuff. Um, The journalist Naomi Klein told this story in a wonderful way in her her book, No Logo. And she said that CEOs started to view the brand as the soul of the corporation and Mm -hmm. treated it thus, treated it with a certain amount of reverence. So in a way, what I'm trying to do in this book is is pick up where Naomi Klein left off and show how branding starts to be considered not only as a great idea for firms, but also as a great idea for nation states. Um, What starts to happen is that national leaders start to worry about what's going to happen to them in a globalized, so-called borderless world. Um, the idea is that the nation seems to be having less and less relevance in the context of globalization of production and trade, and these these national leaders are wondering you know how do they maintain the legitimacy of what they do of the people they represent um, how do they how, what, do, what in, in short what are they supposed to do with themselves in this context? And it started to become apparent to them that one thing they could focus on was the identity and culture of the nation. You know, what if national leaders could put into place a series of strategies to promote the image of the nation as a competitive place, a safe place, a friendly and a lucrative place for people to do business with? Uh, alongside globalization came a growing world of international consumers who want to visit, work, go to school, invest, and do business in different countries. And the thought became what if governments could use national culture and the country's identity to attract all of these international consumers? To me, that's when the seeds of nation branding sprouted. Uh, I, I could say something else, you know, in terms of how I think about globalization and um, neoliberalism in the book, those are, you know, these are really funny terms. Um, They're enormous concepts, of course, that mean very different things to different people. And we tend to use them with a vague sense that they're important and have major impacts on societies, but we aren't always trying to describe or account for the same thing. And I was very interested, especially in my early research for this book, in how often the people I was speaking with took the word or the concept of globalization as a cause, um, saying things like, because we live in a global world, we have to do X, Y, and Z, Um, seeing globalization as something that makes them do other things. And I wanted to take that as a point of departure in this book. I I was very interested to see how people talk about globalization and use it to justify all kinds of changes, including uh, hiring branding consultants uh, to help them Uh, navigate this so-called global world. Um, And I wanted to see what the differences were, if I could talk to people and get them to talk about globalization uh, in different walks of life. Um, You know, if I'm interviewing, say, staff at a chamber of commerce to find out why they were hiring branding consultants, and then if I interviewed uh, some of the participants in the branding project, ordinary citizens who got involved, how did they use globalization uh, and how did they justify branding as a solution to problems of globalization,
0: in a roughly parallel way, you describe in this fabulous second chapter um, uh, how the word competitiveness and the concept of competitiveness, and, and I think a, a closely um, parallel term, attractiveness, became in the culture, and, and uh, you describe the history of the discourse around in connection with. Michael Porter and uh, the World Economic Forum, I thought maybe you could say something about how the nation branding um, industry was enabled at some level by this earlier rise of competitiveness as a discourse.
1: Um, Of course. Michael Porter, um, who's a professor of competitive strategy at the Harvard Business School, I mean, really seen as the guru of corporate strategy, um and it you know has been around for decades and written dozens of, of books uh i really locate the emergence of the idea of competitiveness as applied to nation states in his 1990 book the competitive advantage of nations uh and it was no accident that he f- decided to apply strategies that he had been using in corporate sectors to nations he uh, had sat on the uh, Ronald Reagan's commission on industrial competitiveness in the 1980s and he in the introduction to his book competitive advantage of nations cites that as a, a formative experience that helped him think about this transfer from corporation to nation and the the basic uh, premise of the book is that not just companies but also countries should consider themselves as competitive sites Uh, In other words, we should no longer create regulations uh, merely to shape the actions of firms, but rather create national policies that shape the entire national environment to fit the requirements of key industries. Um, And this transfer, this, this shift in thinking from having corporations be competitive to having countries be competitive is very key to the argument that I make
0: in the book. In particular, it's uh, fascinating in the ways that measurement of competitiveness, relative measurement of uh, ranking basically mm-hmm. came to play such a big role. Um, and the early history of the World Economic Forum um, was, was important in this respect, as you describe. And, uh, you know, if you could speak to that and also the way in which some of these metrics started to contrast perception and reality to kind of identify a gap that, that in, in a way opened up a space for, you know, nation branders to close.
1: What I started to see, you know, after reading The Competitive Advantage of Nations and starting to look at some of the works that that book spawned, I started to notice that in addition to the concept of competitiveness, I was increasingly seeing the concept of attractiveness being brought into conversations about how countries should promote themselves uh, and compete internationally, um, defining attractiveness, uh, by, you know, in, in terms in the terms that these, uh, man, you know, business manuals and books and articles were doing was essentially about how countries could become a more attractive space for foreign investment. So the, it started out as. How can countries work on their image in such a way as to represent their overall appeal to potential investors? And it's around this time, too, that you start to see the rise of investment promotion agencies, and these agencies are almost always, at least they were being very much uh, touted as public-private agencies. So, with a combination of people working in the public sector and in the private sector, which was also very key to their uh, their success, um, this was also a way that investment promotion became opened up to private branding and advertising agencies. You mentioned uh, perception and reality. Um, This is something that is also very uh, instrumental to uh, my understanding of how nation branding came to be so uh, popular and so uh, closely followed by so many different countries. Uh, I mentioned earlier the rise of intangible assets as a key source of value for firms. If you have intangible assets as a source of value, they're, They're invisible. They're intangible. Um, You can't can't see them. Rather, you you feel them or perceive them. And what becomes incredibly important then in that that way of thinking is the notion that what national leaders need to address is the perception of their assets. And that not only this, there need to be ways for professionals um, to help their clients measure and evaluate perception. So what we then see is this proliferation of all kinds of knowledge management, uh, all kinds of charts and um, metrics and rankings and other kinds of hierarchies and formulas to establish this uh, thing called perception and to measure that against something else that is called Reality, but of course, this this gap uh, between perception and reality. Which, incidentally, you start to see again in business manuals. Whether these are tax advisory firms creating them or location advisory firms, all kinds of places that advise companies on where to invest and tourists where to go and so on. Um, you, you start to see this these charts being presented. You know, with this gap between perception, and reality. But, of course, this gap is is ultimately created by these professionals. And it's into this gap that nation branding consultants were to step.
0: And you know, <laughs> that very point about the constitutive role that these professionals um, of all kinds, including the, the management consultants and the location consultancies, uh, created, uh, this point is just brilliantly woven through that second chapter. Um, And you do describe in the third, based on lots of uh, in-depth interviews with the nation branding industry, how um, nation branders took this discourse that in part they helped to create and certainly helped to perpetuate and made a business out of it. And you come up with this label Uh, the transnational promotional class. And I wondered first if you might define its scope. Um, You know, of course, it includes nation branding consultancies, but also uh, describe the rough timing that we're um, looking at here when it comes to uh, these largely Britain-based firms contracting out their expertise to countries like Estonia.
1: What I really wanted to do in the book was track the rise of this nation branding industry, this industry devoted specifically to working with national leaders to manage the nation state. And I discovered that there's this group of experts, um, not just nation branding consultants, they were really the core uh, group that I uh, examined, but there there are more people uh, and groups involved in that association. And I was trying to find a way to describe this group. And I I came up with the label um, transnational promotional class, which is very much inspired by the sociologist Leslie Sclair's idea of a transnational capitalist class. And this is not, so this is not a self-consciously constituted movement. You know, there's no group of people. There's no, there's no agency called transnational promotional class, Mm -hmm. but rather it's this, it's this loosely allied group of actors and institutions that share a common goal. And that goal is to advocate for the continued relevance of the nation state in the 21st century context of global change and exchange. Um, And there's a number of interesting facets to, to this group. If I could maybe contain myself to a, a couple, there's a sense that the nation state for this group is a very lucrative entity. Again, that there's there's money and various other kinds of capital to be made by promoting the nation state as um, a separate entity. You know, as an entity that. Um, is more powerful in many ways than subnational or supranational associations. Uh, that is more um, affective, you know, that that contains values or that expresses values to its people uh, in ways that other kinds of associations, say with cities or with um, the EU, the larger associations, just simply can't
0: can't have. And what about the connection to Britain and the you know the the, the rough timing of the emergence of these consultancies, what what decade are we talking about here?
1: It was really not until the 1990s that people started to, or I started to see uh, corporate branding consultancies uh, adding nations to their portfolio, so to speak, uh, adding uh, clients that would be considered countries or national governments to their portfolio. Um, Although I don't think it's by accident that a lot of the nation branding consultancies initially were located in Britain. At one level, that's a kind of uh, institutional isomorphism. You know, you see in in London, of course, there's already a concentration of advertising and branding firms. Uh, So having one firm doing nation branding is not surprising that others would would get on the, the bandwagon. Um, But at another level, I think it does have to do with uh, the role that Britain uh, has historically played in other countries, um, the kinds of colonial relationships that they've had and the kinds of self-understandings that that has led uh, a lot of
0: businesses in Britain to, uh, to have of themselves. And, you know, this comes across in rich detail in the actual interview excerpts that you populate in this chapter and also weave throughout the rest of the book. And so I just encourage um, readers to um, dive into the details. And, you know, one of the themes that uh, shows up in this chapter, but also throughout the book, is the tension between, uh, on the one hand, the kind of desire by both the nation clients and the, the branders to differentiate the country through a brand that's different from other countries' brands um, to stand out, right, Um, on the one hand. And this other desire to stay within a certain set of boundaries um, uh, to be, you know, in a way to kind of meet the needs of foreign investors, to um, eliminate "Quote unquote hygiene problems," exactly. uh, which are, which is a, apparently a term of art in the industry, and you know the, the, this tension between the felt need to, you know, um, promote difference on the one hand and standardization on the other just seems to be a you know theme throughout the cases that you look at, and uh, and at some points in the book you even refer to this as a kind of defanging of diversity. Okay. So I wondered if you could um, elaborate on that point.
1: Yeah, branding. I think branding was invented, in fact, to navigate this tension between standardization and differentiation. So essentially, um, you know, if we look at the history of branding, it has to do with a desire uh, by product owners to make their products stand out from other products in a similar category. So, you know, to take the most obvious example or banal example of soap or shampoo, uh, essentially all of these products do the same thing and have more or less the same effect. So what branding has to do is to find ways to distinguish, um, differentiate, and articulate unique qualities associated with one of these products so that uh, the consumer will be able to recognize and Um, select one product over another. What happens in the nation branding space is that in order to market culture for distinct economic ends, which is essentially what's going on, it became necessary for nation branding consultants to find ways to articulate the special and unique difference of the national client. Um, you know, in a so-called global context where all countries are competing for their share of tourists, of investors, of skilled workers, of international students, and so on, the country has to present what makes it so distinctive that these various uh, potential investors and visitors want to visit their country rather than another. But here's where the standardization part comes in, Uh, nation branding tends to fundamentally homogenize what is valuable about a country and why people should be interested in one country over another. So, in other words, the categories of differentiation become very narrow. Uh, And what I try to point out in the book is that concepts like diversity or multiculturalism, Uh, other kinds of distinction that obtain among citizenry or among the inhabitants of a country are very often problematic for the logic of the brand. So what you start to see is this weird, you know, as, as you put it, what I call defanging of diversity. I have a feeling I, I borrowed that term from uh, the anthropologist Elizabeth Pavinelli, fantastic writer, um, which she calls uh, the cunning of recognition. Um, this is where essentially the making of diversity becomes a, a fundamentally flawed project Uh, in which the only kind of diversity that matters is one that serves purposes of global trade.
0: And, you know, I'm going to invite you to uh, elaborate on that point in relationship to the Canadian case, um, which you address in a later chapter, but it's precisely this question of Canadian diversity and multiculturalism, which, as you note, and which is widely known as a kind of touchstone of Canadian identity, uh, uh, was used in a variety of overlapping branding efforts As both a kind of branding point, but in such a way that the diversity was treated more like a um, sanitized product to be managed. And and in some fascinating cases contrasted with claims for a sort of authentic domestic diversity. Uh, If you could just talk about that Canadian case um, in this context.
1: Yeah, the Canadian case, um, I, I like to think of the canadian case as an example of a failed brand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and I don't I don't necessarily mean that as a bad thing. I think it's in a way it's, it's a positive when the branding effort doesn't really work. Although in this case part of the reason for the failure had to do with very very different understandings of what diversity should mean. So as you point out there was there was really a fundamental um, schism between how Nation branding consultants and the government actors who got uh, involved in various branding initiatives in Canada uh, understood diversity and uh, what it meant to them. And then, of course, the ongoing rhetoric and and, uh, debates over diversity as they exist in the the Canadian nation-state, which which are many. Mm -hmm. Um, Diversity is seen as a defining characteristic of Canadian identity, um, it's, it's what has structured the country. It's, uh, you know, we, Canada is a country of immigrants. It's always been characterized, uh, by difference. It, it, like Canada likes to think of itself as a place that welcomes and celebrates and encourages diversity. And that vision simply didn't square with the vision of diversity that various, uh, branding surveys and, uh, business, oriented business-led focus groups and research were showing international consumers wanted to see. Uh, And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, it it became a sort of comedy of errors with different understandings of diversity, coloring, boardroom conversations, uh, people, you know, showing immense amounts of frustration, documents being used in very different ways for different purposes to different audiences. And really, this idea of uh, Elizabeth Pavanelli's of the the cunning of recognition, you know, the fantasy of diversity uh, that really only obtains uh, in consumption settings where there's no actual difference, there's no actual conflict, uh, was really at play
0: in the Canadian case. That's perfect. Uh, And I thought, you know, just because this was something that surprised me as I read the book, that I might ask you about the way that nation branding isn't typically just a slogan and a some brochure literature and a very slick website, but instead, at least in theory, nation branders like to um, imagine a much deeper set of initiatives. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, you title one of the chapters um, according to an injunction that's, that 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 was used that citizens in a nation branded nation should be living the brand um, <laughs> and that they should be something like brand ambassadors. And uh, there's a whole slew of different uh, terms like that. And, and in fact, you describe how they are, citizens are marshaled or mobilized to be the media in a way for the message of the brand. And and there are all kinds of uh, fascinating terms like hymn sheets uh, uh, that you might explain in your answer.
1: All of those terms, as I was to discover, do come out of corporate brand management. So they they weren't invented wholesale for nation branding initiatives, but rather they got imported from commercial branding. That chapter, so you're you're talking about the third chapter, Living the Brand, uh, was actually the first chapter that I wrote um, for the book. And it was initially published in a slightly different form. In the International Journal of Communication. Hmm. And at that time, uh, I was still trying to get a handle, you know, it was, that was my first set of interviews with nation branding consultants. And I was still really trying to get a handle on, you know, how does nation branding look on the ground? You know, it's one thing to read all of the various, uh, Tracks that nation branding consultants were putting out about how to brand a nation. It was another thing to really ask them, you know, how how does this process work? Who picks up the phone first? You know, who wants nation branding, and what do you do when you actually go and work with these clients? And um, the consultants that I spoke to were were um, very detailed in their answers and you know, very generous with with uh, their explanations, but also. V- Remarkably unreflexive about the mm-hmm. kinds of terminology they were using and what, what it might mean again in the national space as opposed to a product space. And so, um, to pick up on some of those words you mentioned, a very key concept for, uh, corporate identity that emerged again in the 1970s, 1980s, was about how employees at the corporation could be enjoined to live the brand. And this idea had a lot to do with the globalization of companies and their movement, you know, the multi, multinationalizing of companies, their movement uh, abroad, and the idea that, well, even if you have... Uh, you know, one company in Singapore, another in Japan, and another in the US, this, there has to be a similar corporate culture and there has to be a similar understanding of what the brand means and how to communicate it. Um, and this, so there was, there were a lot of, uh, management exercises, a lot of, uh, work was done from the top down in corporations to get employees to do what they called living the brand, to embrace the values, um, to, so, you know, so to speak, speak the values of, the brand, And again, you know, this is a very old idea in management that everything about an organization talks, not just the employees, but also the stationery and the logo and the structure of the building and, and so on. And so when that idea gets transported or imported into um, national spaces and, and national identity, Uh, What would happen is that these consultants would would work with the various participants in the nation branding or rebranding exercises and explain to them that they too had to believe in and embrace and then find ways to narrate the brand identity that was being proposed and created for them, that they had to be very active participants in the process. And on the one hand, this had a positive effect, sort of, in the sense that uh, what you would start to see, you know, sometimes you would see websites where, you know, a website would be created specifically for the nation branding exercise, and it would say, okay, we want to solicit the views of all citizens. Please, everybody, you know, come to our website or come to our public meetings and tell us your idea of what you think the... Canada brand or the uh, Estonia brand, et cetera, should look like. And so there was a sense that there was citizen participation in this initiative. And that, you know, that was largely taken as as a positive by many. But on the other hand, again, as I said, there, there are so many other constraints and controls on how the branding actually got done and what purposes it was really designed to serve, that it did not end up being a truly participatory or deliberative exercise. Uh, rather what would happen would be that these consultants would work in a, uh, given location, usually in the, you know, the more highly populated settings within a country. So in the larger cities, which again, we could talk about in terms of urban populations versus rural populations getting included in these conceptions of the brand, but maybe that's for another, another story, but, uh, what would ultimately happen is that after a series of focus groups, meetings, uh, roundtables, and, and seminars, and so on, the consultants would retreat and prepare um, a brand book. And this brand book was a you know a kind of report on what they had seen and heard and what what people had to say, but it also contained some prescriptions for what to do next and how to advance the concept of the brand. What um, kinds of um, concepts to use, what kinds of imagery to use. Um, And these strategies that underpin the brand were referred to often as hymn sheets or song sheets, which, as the terms imply, are intended to harmonize and unify the communications for the nation brand among different members of the population.
0: Yeah. You know, the the terminology is sometimes amusing, but, um, uh, you know, in the case that that I want to ask you about next, Poland, it really... Um, did, in fact, in your argument, close off an an alternative national imaginary. And this chapter was perhaps my favorite. You look at this uh, deeply interesting Polish case where um, a brand – Management consultancy ultimately settled on a slogan, a brand for Poland: uh, "Creative Tension," which, mm-hmm. which ironically, didn't translate very well. Right, uh, uh, but you could talk about that. But also, uh, especially the way in which the sort of solidarity evoking uh, kite logo um, uh, that that was um, proposed by one agency, the way in which that sort of solidarity theme didn't resonate with the standardized brand that the consultants were attempting to create. So if you could just uh, describe that really interesting Polish case.
1: Yeah, the, the Polish case, I mean, I have to admit uh, that chapter is one of my favorites as well. Um, I th- I was just so compelled by that, my time in Poland and the people that I spoke with there and especially the passion that the people I spoke with felt for this branding initiative. It was very powerful. Uh, we have to remember, I, I really had to remind myself in this project that branding and advertising do not have long histories in every country in the world. In fact, quite the contrary. So at the outset, um, Bringing a branding project into a place that does not have a long history of promotional industries or a strong relationship to advertising and branding, or they do have a strong relationship, but they call it propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that really changes the way in which um, people in different countries are going to receive the idea of branding and advertising. That that's a, that's a that was a big. Um, insight that I developed over the course of uh, researching this book. And so, we have to remember that in um, Poland, you know, in the communist era, advertising was something that was seen as inherently suspicious. If you had to advertise a product in Poland, uh, it meant that the product was not good. That was what I I was told by the people I interviewed there. So, when the branding project was first proposed in Poland, this was in around uh, 2003 on the eve of Poland's accession into the European Union, a lot of people were automatically uh, suspicious and automatically uninterested in what this branding project could do. Um, and those, that group of... I mean, if I had to... uh Characterized the group people who were most suspicious, it was mainly the older generation in Poland, of course, who had been through um, the communist era, you know, who had been through the much longer um, period of time in in Poland. Uh, So what the branding consultants did was to work uh, almost exclusively with young people and to convince them that the branding project was a way for them to change the way in which they were seen in the world. Um, and that the brand, the fact alone that it was branding would help um, Polish uh, inhabitants, Polish citizens uh, be seen as part of the West, be seen as part of the market economy and be seen as part of uh, the globalization project, so to speak. Uh, and what I came to discover was that The Polish participants in the project did understand all of that and they were very much on board with with those ideas. As I say, it was not an accident that this project uh, began right before Poland joined the EU. It was was seen as a very uh, complimentary uh, narrative, very complimentary exercise to help them um, smooth their entry into the EU um, and be perceived also by the EU, not just um, by the West, as being uh, a viable market economy. But for these Polish participants, the project had another very, very deep layer of meaning. And this was that it would um, help all, or not all, but many of the historical narratives that had informed the sense of what it meant to be Polish to come to light. Mm -hmm. It would help Poland express who it really was. Um, And so there was this connection, very, very deep connection to Polish heritage, um, to earlier generations, I mean, you know, even much, much further back to to icons and monuments of Polish life. Um, and at the same time, so, so you had that project going on. That was the one uh, uh, portrait that I try to paint in the chapter. At the same time, you mentioned this solidarity kite thing. So I I learned that there was a simultaneous. Uh, branding initiative going on that had less, it was a little bit more marginal. It had definitely less support from the West because this was developed mainly by a Polish uh, advertising agency. And I spoke to I think all of the people who participated in this other uh, branding project. And this project was to tie Poland's new identity to its um, solidarity movement, the Solidarność, the the social movement that had helped in the late 1980s, of course, to to totally change uh, Poland's history. And the people working on this tight uh, project understood Poland's identity as... um, Somewhat radical, you know. Again, is very much tied to the political potential of this uh, solidarity movement, um, and as 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 in, indeed very unique, uh, differentiating something that the world would see as a positive. And over the course of my time in Poland and during these interviews, it, it became clear that that vision, you know, that alternative vision, the counter vision of what Poland could be, was simply not seen as acceptable. To the branding consultants. Um, not only because they weren't its engineers, but also because the values that were held in that vision of Poland as being connected to its past in that way were not good for capital. They were not good for international investment. They would not promote Poland as a quote-unquote normal, uh, safe market. Economy, place in which to do investment. And so that project, that second project, ultimately just got uh, sidelined.
0: And it really is that chapter, the kind of perfect encapsulation of your overall argument about how uh, these nation branding efforts uh, ha- have the effect often of creating a story about a nation that is market friendly, standardized in respect to the uh, expectations or the perceived expectations of uh, those who might provide foreign direct investment, which throughout the book seems like a kind of fetish for both <laughs> the clients and the consultants themselves. Um, and, you know, in, in part because of time, I'm going to have to skip over the uh, f- fascinating uh, chapter on that that treats many of the other cases, and I do want to ask you about uh, the concluding points you make and in particular you know the return to London that you made after the global crisis uh, and interviewed some of the same nation branding consultants um, about their business you know and whether it had changed after the global financial crash and uh, i'm curious what your um, interview subjects had to say about nation branding in the wake of the you know global collapse.
1: That for me was uh, it, in a way the most revealing uh, part of this venture, and it really reminded me that when you conduct interviews as your research method it's so valuable to conduct them again. <laughs> right. It seemed, you know, there was a point in which I thought, is this really necessary? You know, do I need to go back and talk to these people again? I, I know what they, uh, you know, are trying to do. They've explained it and they've been very generous with their time. But going back a few years later and talking to these people again was so revealing in terms of how their thinking had evolved. I think it helped me give a much better, uh, more accurate sense of what, Um, how nation branding is thought of and positioned as a solution to so many problems. Uh, And as I mentioned in that, so the the conclusion to the book, I thought what would happen would be that the financial crisis would reveal that nation branding was ultimately a very flawed project. Um, And I thought that the financial crisis would reveal that what these people had been doing was in a way contributing to an image of nation states in the world that was not sustainable. And that is not what I found. (laughs) (laughs) What I found is that these nation branding consultants were, well, first of all, I would say some of them had moved into other fields. So some of them felt that it was drying up, uh, that countries were less and less willing to uh, spend the money to hire consultants to do the kind of image work that they were doing. Um, but again that was not attributed in my interviews that the people i spoke to said that was not because of the financial crisis so it wasn't just that money was sort of frozen and people were being very careful about how they spent it uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis rather it was uh, as these consultants put it a real failure on the part of national governments and other national leaders uh, you know of cultural institutions and so on to understand what nation branding could do for them And this, I mean, I guess, again, in hindsight, I guess one could say that's a very classic response. You know, if you do a certain kind of work, you you don't want your work to seem suddenly illegitimate. You want to consider, you want to continue to promote it as legitimate and locate the blame elsewhere. But I think it was, it was much more than this. It was really this sense that, people who want to have their nation state be recognized in this world need to get with the program that was really the message mm-hmm. that i received from these people that they need to recognize that we live in an image dominated world that we live in a competitive world and that really the only way to be viable you know the only way to be part of the so called 21st century global era is to focus on what other people think of you in these very particular narrow channels of communication and exchange. Uh, and that was... Um it, it was very hard for me to hear that, um, because it, I think that they're right that a lot of people will continue to use nation branding because of those reasons. I think people will, um, you know, I, I, as they are today, it's not as though everyone has stopped doing nation branding. On the contrary, it's more and more of a topic of academic study and of uh, corporate study. And more and more people are actually getting involved in, in nation branding now, not, not fewer. But I think it also does, just say something about um, what, what we are and aren't learning <laughs> from the financial crisis, you know, and, and what to do next.
0: The problem, in effect, in effect <clears throat> is that uh, the nation branders' um, uh, clients aren't internalizing the hymn sheet well enough um, uh, by their definition, right? So uh, in any event, uh, I'm wondering, Melissa, if there is anything uh, that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you wanted to um, raise as an issue.
1: I did want to say something about the the paradox that I came across in, in the book. And this was, I guess, a, a personal paradox as much as it is a paradox of nation branding itself. And this is that um, nation branding does have... Uh, incredible potential it, it the way I, the way I think about nation branding it did reveal in a kind of um, surprising uh, way that the nation still really matters um, in a global era you know where in a lot of the discussion about globalization in academic writing and but also in popular writing was that as globalization advanced. Uh, the nation would start to wane. Um, and that was that was mainly seen as a good thing. And I, I understand why. There are a lot of reasons why people would want the nation state to have less power and not more. And yet, uh, as has been demonstrated um, with, you know, what, I don't know if we want to think about the news headlines over the last uh, few years, the nation state still deeply matters to a lot of people um, for a variety of reasons, uh, some to do with, the idea that the nation is still the container for rights uh, and responsibilities that we do not have at other levels of organization. Uh, Some because the notion of home, the notion of where we come from is still an incredibly powerful notion uh, that can't be discarded by uh, borderless visions of a, a world culture. And I think that in its own way, nation branding does open up the terrain for public conversation about what the national narrative ought to be. I also think that nation branding popularizes the conversation in the best sense of the word popularize it. It makes it a conversation of the people because it's a vernacular that is so popular that many people recognize. It doesn't make a discussion about what the nation should be merely the province of elites. It makes it something that everyone can talk about. Of course, this is the paradox. The problem is that nation branding doesn't allow for
0: all kinds of conversations. Right. Well, that nuance and sophistication that you just got across in uh, in your answer here is exactly what the book is filled with. So I just uh, highly encourage listeners to um, read the book itself. And uh, I did also want to ask you, uh, since you finished this some time ago, um, what is the project that you're working on next or working on now?
1: Um, I have two projects on the go right now. Um, one is about the politics of oil or uh, more specifically about the fight that's going on right now between social movements and counter movements when representing their claims about oil to the public. Uh, here I'm focusing right now on uh, both the uh, Keystone XL pipeline conversations as well as on the tar sands uh, exploitation in Canada. And, of course, those two projects are are connected. The issue is about oil flows uh, from the tar sands in Canada uh, down to the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, I'm very interested in seeing how um, PR consultants and other strategic consultants have been brought in to frame the terms of the debate. Um, I was especially looking at over the last uh, six months or so, uh, especially looking at one lobby group in Canada called Ethical Oil, uh, which is uh, an astroturf movement whose goal is to reframe the conversation from an environmental issue to a, to an ethical and moral one, and tying they're tying the discussion about oil to one of national values. So there's some very uh, intriguing connections between my book on nation branding and, and the stuff I'm looking at here, but uh, I, I think I'm also attracted to this project because of my own uh, personal outrage <laughs> about mm-hmm. what's going on with this with oil exploitation, oil exploitation in North America. So.
0: And you mentioned a second project.
1: The second project is is nascent. I all, perhaps almost shouldn't have mentioned it, but it's. I'm very excited about it. It's a new book project, and uh, the book will be about reputation. I'm going to look at reputation from a variety of different angles.
0: Well, that that sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, Best of luck with both of those. And uh, thanks again, Melissa, just for taking the time with me. And congratulations on a truly superb book. Thank you, Jeff. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to New Books in Communications. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.